Let's turn to the 51st chapter of Isaiah, reading verses 1 and 2 of Isaiah 55. Hearken, Isaiah 51, excuse me. Hearken to me, ye that follow after righteousness, ye that seek the Lord. Look unto the rock whence ye are hewn, to the hole of the pit whence ye are digged. Look unto Abraham your father, and unto Sarah that bear you. For I called him alone, and blessed him, and increased him. The nation of Israel in the days of the of prophet Isaiah was in much the same condition as the nation of America is today. Uh, there was a religious history, and yet the religious situation had decayed badly. Uh, the moral integrity of the leadership was extremely low. Uh, the defenses of the nation were weak, and uh, there were uh, storm clouds on the horizon, especially the nation of Babylon and its uh, threatenings and in its strength as it threatened to conquer and take captive the nation of Israel. Certainly you have a similar situation in America today with our religious heritage and yet our uh, corrupt uh, morals, the corruption in government, the threat, uh, the Russian power. We see in this situation that God, through Isaiah, issues a call to Israel to look at her founding ancestors. In this 51st chapter of Isaiah, in the first verse, he says, Hearken to me, ye that follow after righteousness, ye that seek the Lord, look unto the rock whence ye are hewn, and to the hole of the pit whence ye are digged. You notice whom he addresses the godly of the nation. In fact, he says, you are the ones uh, that are the hope of the nation. And they are to look uh, to the rock from which they were hewn. When he refers to the godly of the nation as those that follow after righteousness and that seek the Lord, the word righteousness is used in Two senses in Scripture. It's used in the sense of a right standing legally with God, and uh, that's a gift. By nature, all men are sinners, and we are not righteous. We're all unrighteous. We've all gone against God's laws. So it says there's none righteous, no, not one. But when a man acknowledges that he's gone against God's law, that he's a sinner, and looks to God to forgive him through Jesus Christ as a sheer gift, through Christ's death on the cross for our sins, then God accounts us righteous. He gives us a right standing. He forgives our sins. And uh, that was pictured for the people of Isaiah's day by the offering of a lamb, a lamb without spot or blemish. And Isaiah, in the 53rd chapter, just two chapters later than the one we're looking at, 
says in reference to the coming Messiah, Jesus Christ, that all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all, that he is led as a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so openeth he not his mouth. That God would make his soul an offering for our sin, and through knowledge of him, he would declare many righteous. He would justify many. So we see that the way that a man could be righteous, be a part of this godly group, was the same then as it is now, through faith in Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who would die for our sins. Then, when we have this, at the same time, God not only accounts us righteous, but he begins to work within to make us righteous, to make us obedient, and to give us the ability to, from the heart, obey him. So that you can describe a man as being righteous, even from, either from his legal standing with God or his actual walk, that he's walking the way that God called on him to walk. So, hearken to me, ye that follow after righteousness, you who have put your trust in the Lord for salvation and who are seeking to follow him in his strength and obey his commandments. Those are addressed. It's a small group within the nation. But those are the ones who are in communication with God and in right standing with God. Again, notice what they're to do. They are to look unto the rock from whence they were hewn, to the pit from which they were dug. That is, they are to consider their origin. They are to reflect on their ancestors. He spells it out further. Look unto Abraham your father and unto Sarah that bear you. Why were they to do this? Why were the godly to look at Abraham and Sarah? Because they would see there people to emulate. They would see a man and his wife who walked with the Lord, who were people of faith. Abraham was strong in faith, giving glory to God, being fully persuaded that what God had promised he was able to perform. And uh, there is the man that you are to emulate in these dark days, says God to the nation. Look unto Abraham, look unto Sarah, consider them, follow them. Learn from them. Notice also how God blessed them. As he says, For I called him alone and blessed him and increased him. He was small. He was weak. But because he walked with the Lord, God blessed him and increased him and made him strong and made a mighty nation of him. Look to Abraham. Look to your ancestors. See what he did. See what I did in response to what he did. I wonder if that same call shouldn't be addressed to the nation today. Look unto the rock from whence you're hewn, the pit from which you're digged. Consider your ancestors. What were our founding ancestors like? Well, when we uh, speak along those lines, we uh, would 
think probably of two groups of founding ancestors, those who sailed in the Mayflower and those who signed the Declaration of Independence 150 years later. Those who sailed in the Mayflower in 1620, what were they like? What can we uh, emulate in these men? As we think of those men, we need to understand the background of their sailing. In 1603, King James VI of Scotland became King James I of England. And uh, the situation in the nation at that time was that the Protestant Reformation, starting in Germany in 1517 and then in Switzerland with uh, Calvin a little later, had spread throughout Europe, had spread onto England, and had uh, influenced the Church of England tremendously. The Church of England some years before had been uh, pulled out of the Roman Catholic Church by uh, the king, who made himself the head of the English Church. Uh, But basically its structure was Roman Catholic and its theology. But as the Reformation spread to England, it affected the theology of the Church of England, so that the theology of the Church of England became Protestant, became Reformed, became Calvinistic. Thirty-nine articles of the Church of England, your Westminster Confession of Faith, drawn up, and so on. But the while the theology had become Protestant and Reformed, the worship remained uh, as it had been. And there were men in the Church of England who felt very strongly that the Reformation wasn't thoroughgoing enough, that it was inconsistent. It was inconsistent to not change the worship to accord with the theology, not to get back to the simplicity of New Testament worship. And these men were called Puritans because they wanted a pure church. And they did not want to bow. They did not want to uh, have an altar. They did not want to uh, look upon the Lord's Supper in any sense at all, uh, beyond what it was as a mass or anything of this nature. And uh, so they they felt conscience bound to this position, that they were sinning if they worshipped in a wrong way. They hoped that King James would allow uh, them to worship according to the dictates of their conscience and that even their position would become the dominant position in the church and the church would be purified. King James started off well. One of the Puritans suggested to him, uh, we need a new translation of the Bible. King James' translation was made. A wonderful translation. But then he signed a proclamation requiring everyone to conform to the worship. Fifteen hundred ministers refused to sign. They were ousted, many of them, from their pulpits. Others were imprisoned. Uh, The congregations that sought to worship this way were persecuted. And uh, finally it got so bad that a group near Scorby, England, decided to come to America to start here a colony of England, but to be free here to worship according to the dictates of their conscience. They got a boat that was 30 years old, a ship, the Mayflower, 
and they sailed uh, to found here an English colony in allegiance to the king, but free to worship according to the dictates of their conscience. They almost perished en route. Uh, they hit very stormy weather. The ship cracked. The ship would have gone down. But one of the uh, pilgrims in his knapsack at the last minute had inserted a great iron screw. They took that screw and bolted the cracked ship together. And the ship stayed afloat. And they made it. In the harbor at Provincetown, they drew up the Mayfire Compact, which reads as follows. In the name of God, we whose names are undersigned, having undertaken for the glory of God and the advancement of the Christian faith and the honor of our king and country, a voyage to plant the first colony in the north part of Virginia, do bind ourselves together in a body politic. They signed this Mayflower Compact. They had a terrible first year. Half of them died. But they were tremendously courageous, and they looked to God. Their pastor was a godly man, John Robinson, a Calvinist. They were all Calvinists. And within the next 20 years, 20,000 came over and joined them in this endeavor. 20,000 Puritans. This was the foundation of our nation. These were the fathers. These were their values. They came here to worship God according to the dictates of their conscience. They had a tremendous emphasis on a personal relationship with a sovereign God. Tremendous sense of calling, of vocation, a sense of law and order, and that it was the responsibility of Christian people to obey the civil authority except when the civil authority conflicted with God's authority. And this was the makeup of the founding fathers of our nation. As time went on, <clears throat> they established their congregations, and their congregations were self-governing. They were of a congregational nature, and this influenced their whole thought about government. It got them involved in self-government. And when it came time to establish their own government, they thought in these terms. They were used to being involved and to be self-governing. They were influenced not only by their Puritan beliefs and by their religious convictions of a Calvinistic nature, but as time went on, a second element began to creep in. The spirit of the age of reason and uh, an emphasis on the enlightenment, on the human reason, exalting it over God's revelation. And gradually the dominant influence in New England became uh, deistic, where men still believed in God, but for many he was not the God of Scripture. For many, he was uh, related to the Christian faith, but Jesus Christ wasn't the Son of God. It was not a Trinitarian God. They became deists 
of a modified sort. They believe that God controlled things. They believe that he heard and answered prayer. But they did not believe that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die for our sins. This was a growing influence in the colonies and uh, began to really sweep them until around the 1730s, when through John Wesley, through George Whitfield, through Jonathan Edwards, a tremendous revival called the Great Awakening broke out in this country. And uh, men were swept back to the faith of their fathers. Uh, tremendous influence was exercised. But still, you had your rationalistic element present, and it began to again predominate a generation later. That brings us down to the signers of the Declaration of Independence. Now, these men then had a Puritan background, but many of them were deists. And uh, the dominant religious outlook was that of the deists. In the actual group that signed the Declaration of Independence. A minority position among the signers was that of evangelical faith. Samuel Adams of Massachusetts, Robert Sherman of Connecticut, and Patrick Henry of Virginia were staunch evangelical believers. John Witherspoon was another. John Witherspoon was the president of Princeton and a signer of the Declaration. And uh, yet you had men like Ethan Allen, uh, he wrote uh, Reason, the Only Oracle of Man, which was an attack on the Bible. Uh, Thomas Paine, who was the greatest pamphleteer of the war effort, was also one of the most important proponents of deism and rationalism. And his book, Age of Reason, was an attack on orthodoxy and a defense of deism. George Washington was an evangelical believer. Washington... And when he was 20 years old, stated his faith, Pardon, I beseech thee my sins. Remove them from thy presence as far as the east is from the west, and accept me for the merits of thy Son, Jesus Christ, that when I come into thy temple and compass thine altar, my prayer may come before thee as incense. So on. He praised God's blessing on his family, his kindred, his friends, and country. And he says, Be our guard, God and guide this day and forever for his sake who lay down in the grave and rose again for me, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. When he died, as a part of his will, these words are found. Being heartily sorry from the bottom of my heart for my sins past, most homely desiring forgiveness of the same from Almighty God, my Savior and Redeemer, in whom and by the merits of Jesus Christ I trust and believe assuredly to be saved and to have full remission and forgiveness of all my sins. That was his faith. Benjamin Franklin was a deist, and Franklin probably was representative of most of these men when he states his faith like this. I believe in one God creator of the universe, that he governs it by his providence, that he ought to be worshipped, that the most acceptable service we render to him is doing good to his other children, that the soul of man is immortal and will be treated with justice in another life respecting its conduct in this. We see that he viewed uh, that he would save himself by his own good behavior. 
He was his own savior. That's deism. Uh, these I take to be the fundamental principles of all sound religion, and I regard them as you do in whatever sect I meet with them. As to Jesus of Nazareth, my opinion of whom you particularly desire, I think the system of morals and his religion, as he left them to us, the best the world ever saw or is likely to see, but I apprehend it has received various corrupting changes. And I have, with most of the present dissenters in England, some doubts as to his divinity. He was typical of many of these men. Uh, we see the conviction of these men in, that there was a God, that uh, his providence ruled among men, that they must have his favor to succeed except the Lord build a house, said Franklin. They labor in vain that build it. Uh, he called at the Constitutional Assembly for prayer. He said, if a nation, if... Uh, God sees the sparrows and uh, governs their flight. Certainly no nation can expect to rise without his blessings, and so let us pray to him now for wisdom and introduce a motion that they should have prayer every day to him uh, and to have a chaplain for that Constitutional Assembly, which motion failed, but that was his feeling about it. And the reason it failed, they didn't have any money, and they figured they'd have to pay their preacher, and that's right. <coughs> <laughs> but uh, the, uh, these men believed in the providence of God. They believed that his favor was utterly necessary. They were committed to relying on him. The, the, doc, the Declaration of Independence closes with a declaration of dependence, as they speak of, with a firm reliance upon divine providence. We commit our lives and our substance and our honor to one another. Uh, the, the heritage that these men had left them in this position with their belief in divine providence and yet with something of a deistic faith, many of them. The gravest danger that faced our country after the Revolutionary War was the Civil War. Lincoln was leading our country at that time. When he came to office, elected by 40% of the popular vote, seven states had already seceded from the Union. Lincoln had a tremendous concept of his dependence on God's providence and on the fact that this war had been brought on our nation as a punishment for our sins, particularly the sin of slavery. And uh, he called the nation to repentance, uh, to uh, asked God's forgiveness for having offended him. Then constantly he more and more told the nation that they must rely on God and humble themselves before God. So there's the rock from whence we were hewn. Now, what did God do? We see what they did. What did God do? Well, there's un undoubtedly the obvious evidence that God blessed these men. He blessed their efforts. He blessed the nation that they founded along these lines. Uh, Washington was so conscious of this, and it was so evident, time and time and time again, our nation would never have made it. Here, this small nation takes its stance against the mightiest power on earth at that time and survives. 
time and time and time again, we would have been conquered. On one occasion, uh, it was all over. Matter of fact, Cornwallis uh, had Washington troops fenced in. They were mired down in the mud. Their cannon and artillery, they couldn't move them. And uh, he could have taken them that night, but he thought he'd wait till morning to take them. He sent his baggage aboard the ship to England because he knew he'd be sailing immediately. As soon as he took Washington, it was all over. But as our men prayed and Washington prayed, the wind swung around, a cold north wind. It froze those muddy roads. They were able to move their cannon. They moved them around back of Cornwallis's troops, took him by surprise. Time after time after time, that kind of thing happened. So that Washington said this, The hand of providence has been so conspicuous in all of this that he must be worse than an infidel that lacks faith and more than wicked that has not gratitude enough to acknowledge his obligation. In his first inaugural address, he said, No people can be bound to acknowledge and adore the invisible hand which conducts the affairs of men more than the people of the United States. Every step by which they have advanced to the character of an independent nation seems to have been distinguished by some token of providential agency. God blessed. They knew he was blessed. What can we learn from considering the pit from whence we were digged, and the rock from whence we were hewn. Number one, we can learn that God blesses a nation. When that nation seeks righteousness and acknowledges its dependence on him, even though many of its leaders come short of a real commitment to Jesus Christ, still, when that nation acknowledges him, and its dependence on him, and seeks integrity and justice and righteousness in his dealings. God honors that. That seems to be obvious in the history of this nation. We see that the heart of a nation comes from its moral values, from its integrity. That's the heart of a nation. And when it loses that, it's beginning to decay from within. We see that a committed core of Christians can influence the entire nation with a set of values, even though the entire nation doesn't become Christian, and that that influence will continue on from generation to generation, uh, spread far wider than that committed core. That the committed core is the salt. Or it's the leaven that lifts the whole. When the uh, Korean prisoners of war died so dramatically, many of our prisoners of war in Korea, the psychologists began to examine why. Why was there such a high percentage of death among our prisoners of war, higher than any other war, with the possible exception of the Civil War? And as they examined it, one that they were tortured so bad. It was that the communists pulled out from among our prisoners of war that committed core who had strong religious convictions. And the others died 
Many of the others, a very high percentage of the others, turned their face to the wall and died. They gave up because that salt was gone, that adhesiveness, that core, that group that gave a standard of values and a purpose to things and gave light had been pulled out. I turned that around and put in a committed core and you lift the hole and you give a solidness and a firmness to it. How many did they have to pull out? Five percent. The heart of a nation comes from its moral values. That a committed Christian nucleus can affect the moral tone of the whole nation through its evangelization and through its lifestyle. Carl Henry, commenting uh, on this in his book, Aspects of Christian Social Ethics, uh, says that the business of government is to make good laws. The, our business, the church's business, is to make good citizens who will gladly obey those laws and continually demand better laws, embodying higher and higher ethical standards. And he quotes Dean Inge, who says, Our whole duty is to hold up the Christian view of life, the Christian standard of values, steadily before the eyes of our generation, to live by that standard ourselves and to show that we are not ashamed of it, that we find that it works, that we are ready to defend and justify it to all questioners. And we do this. There's no such lever for moving society as religious faith. It really moves society because it alters the will and the characters of individuals. Make the tree good and the fruit will be good. It really makes an impact, this committed core. We see that liberty and freedom of worship according to the dictates of our conscience are worth risking our lives for. When Patrick Henry said, give me liberty or give me death, he was speaking as an evangelical Christian. And he was speaking from that background that these men had been through. We may feel they were overreacting to the issue of taxation without representation. But that wasn't the issue. The issue went back for 150 years as to why they'd come here to begin uh, with. They'd come here to be free to worship God, and they saw this uh, step of English authority as a step back toward taking away their liberties that they'd come here to establish in the first place, a step back toward totalitarianism. And so they reacted as strong as they did, and they said, no, the kind of liberty we've enjoyed here, which is unique in the history of man, a free church and a free state, that's something that's worth dying for. We're not going to give it up without a struggle. You know, we don't appreciate that. It's like the air we breathe. You don't miss the air. You don't appreciate the air until you get in a room where it begins to get real stuffy and where you can't breathe. And then you begin to think of the tremendous privilege of breathing fresh air. And that's the way it is with liberty. We don't appreciate it. We see that if we are to be free, we're going to have to fight to be free. We're going to have to be prepared to fight. We're going to have to rely on God as we fight. But we have to be willing to fight, as they were. Because constantly those freedoms will be eroded 
either by the very government that we established. And that's why they established a limited form of government with checks and balances. They understood the danger of government itself robbing them of freedom, their own government. Or foreign governments that we have to be prepared to fight against that. Uh, The United States, when it's demonstrated a willingness to fight, has remained free. And others have backed down. In the Cuban crisis in 1962, our strategic weapon margin over the Soviets was rated anywhere from 8 to 1 to 10 to 1. In recent years, our strategic weapon programs have stayed almost stock still, while the Soviets have forged ahead with fearful rapidity. And now they have a superior superior edge. Meanwhile, uh, our uh, conventional forces have been allowed to decay, while they have tremendously built up their conventional forces, so that uh, while as as two decades ago the Soviets had no navy worth considering, today their navy is more modern and more powerful than our own. And their recent worldwide naval war, Okin 75, took the form of a mock assault on the United States with seaborne nuclear weapons. As the outcome of the Cuban Missile Crisis so happily proved, a strong military posture uh, is the best insurance policy for peace. If you're strong enough to fight, says Joseph Alsop, and you're willing to fight, you almost never have to fight. A loss of will, though, is the essential uh, deterioration. He says, it has to be admitted, however, that American policymakers are wise to be more concerned today by an apparent weakening in our country's national will than by our military position, for a loss of will devalues the most powerful weaponry. He says, in recent weeks, a half a dozen leaders of both great parties have confided to me unhappily that they feared the United States, short of responding to a direct attack like that at Pearl Harbor, would never fight again after Vietnam. That's a terribly dangerous position where the inner strength of conviction and will of our nation is falling in. That's the position that we're in. Now, we can see the values and the lessons of these founding fathers. We can learn from their mistakes. One mistake that they made was that while they appreciated the connection between morality and freedom, that they could not long long maintain their freedom and their government without a moral core of the nation. They didn't appreciate that that moral core couldn't long exist without the Christian faith at its core, without committed Christians as the nucleus of that. They didn't appreciate that. They didn't appreciate that their integrity and their sense of justice and right and wrong was something that they had inherited from their Christian forefathers, and it couldn't continue long 
apart from the Christian faith. We can see their mistake. We see the way back. Charles Colson recently wrote in his book, Born Again, when he said he looked at the nation in its darkness after becoming a Christian, and he wanted to do something. He says, while my inclination was to think in terms of grandiose reform, God seemed to be saying that the renewal of our national spirit can begin with each person, uh, with the renewal of the inner spirit. If you want to do something, he felt, submit yourself to me and I will guide you. Here's a man who was a leader in our nation, but he led astray. Because at the heart of the matter, he wasn't right with Jesus Christ. He didn't have the foundation. Now he's got the foundation. How did he come to have that foundation? Another layman shared with him about his relationship to Jesus Christ. Now he's got that foundation. He is renewed inwardly. And he's telling his story to others. So that they can be renewed inwardly. Think of the impact that one man, the change in his life, is going to make on the nation. Now multiply that many times over. And you see the way back to real renewal. Christians must spread their faith. They must evangelize. They must live their standards out. Not be ashamed of them. Learn to verbalize them. They must be involved in government, making their influence felt, making their influence felt towards the necessity of maintaining a limited government and a strong America. As we do that, that's the way back towards national renewal. It's kind of all summed up for me in a poem by Sally Dewberry entitled, America's Restoration. Oh, where are you, America, land of the brave and free? You're free of caught in paper chains, they're bureaucratic slaves. The brave that once stood up for right now ponders right and wrong and seek a standard which they like to base their, base their ethics on. Oh, where are you, America, America the bold? You used to rally to the cry of man oppressed and sold. Now Vietnamese and Angolese are wondering where you went. When on the cry of yellow doves you hide behind the tent. What spacious skies are filled with smog? What field, what mountains cleft in two? What fields of amber green are shipped to those who will pierce you through? Has God removed his shedded grace and left you to your maze? Have brotherhood and freedom's cause been dropped for selfish ways? I say it's there beneath the crust, a will to honor God throughout the highways of the land on every sidewalk trod are men and women, kids and teens who who know his grace and power to heal a land that's sick with sin and more know every hour. A mighty army he can raise to save you from defeat and give us back the America that's known as freedom's beat. Let us pray. Father, raise up that mighty army and let it begin with me. Father, may we each 
truly turn to you, as Colson did, as George Washington did, as these other men, Father, who sailed here to establish this country, may we truly turn to you, and may we be willing to live out a Christian lifestyle, no matter what the cost, and may we spread it to others, Father, so that that committed inner core will increase and will influence our nation. May we do it all in utter dependence on you, knowing except the Lord build a house, they labor in vain that build it. Father, we pray for any present here who are not a part of that committed core, that they would become so today, that they would start with a personal relationship with you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.